Welcome to Pathways to Power podcast, episode four, turning the focus on donors and INGOs. I'm Terry Gibson, and I've been linking up with people in twos and threes on Skype and in phone calls. Conversations have spanned continents, linking people working at the front line of development and humanitarian response with others who draw alongside them. The previous episodes have revealed that localization digs a lot deeper than just a transfer of financial resources. At the heart of it is supporting and strengthening local communities and enabling them to unleash their power to achieve sustainable change and progress. This episode turns the focus on donors and INGOs and asks in what ways they can be part of the solution and in what ways they're sometimes part of the problem. So I think uh, the one thing is that the whole capacity analysis of the local level NGOs has always been uh, put into a state because um, the local level NGOs or national level NGOs has always been um, taken as uh, as a partner, not taken as a partner, but always as a receiver. No? For Samira, the problem is one of inequality between local and national NGOs on the one hand and international NGOs and donors on the other. Melvin refers to these large institutions as the big brothers. Now, the big brothers, let me call them that, who are controlling the huge budgets, uh, like as Melvin has said, uh, we also want to be very careful not to give money to an organization which is uh, which is small, doesn't have the capacity. So they will continue uh, maybe supporting those organizations which they, they are comfortable with. And they know that this one, at least we have assurance that they will deliver results if we give them the money. So there is a need for the big brothers to start programs which will uh, capacity build. Uh, other organizations which are working towards uh, supporting uh, programs at the grassroots level, so they are also uh, given the funding if need be, uh, not to be restricted on the grounds that they are small, they don't have capacity, they don't have this, they don't have that. So I think capacity building is the, the, one to, I mean, the key thing that needs to be addressed. There's clearly a need for resourcing the capacity building of communities and local organisations. And for HIBAC, the power inequality between small and large organisations is also to do with access, access to knowledge and funds. It's not just uh, capacity. It gets further, further down to just access and ability to have access to financing. And the reality is, is when we talk about imbalance between local actors and international actors, it's really that access. It's access to um, changing policy, it's access to influencing policy, it's access to influencing programming, it's access to financing. The, the biggest issue is is that lack of access, um, where, you know, it, I used to work for international organizations and multilateral organizations, and, you know, you have that access. You have a headquarters that in Washington or in London that continuously talks with the donor that's physically there and local actors don't have that benefit. INGOs may have good access to donors, but it seems that communities and local organisations often don't. Maybe it's time for donors to start listening more intently to what's happening locally. You know, a lot of what I'm hearing as well is the donor mandates, right? The donor, the donor, the donor, which makes me think that we should try to get to some of those larger donors to see what it is that they're thinking about in terms of shifting their own practices. 
we're not we're not doing this because we think we need to do this. We're doing this because it's mandated at a higher financial level. So then, how can we shift that? Um, because if the NGOs continue to point to their donors, um, then we need to be talking to their donors. Sam's suggesting that the failure of NGOs to build equal partnerships with local organisations and communities is in part due to donor requirements and those need to change. If so, what kind of things would happen? How can you possibly expect an organisation with that aspiration to achieve if you're not giving them some flexible funding or some unrestricted funding or, or like specific seed funding for growing a, an income generating activity or whatever it might be um, and doing that almost like as part of the standard way of giving grants. So there are some, I think there's some really interesting things that could be incrementally done and that funders could think about doing. There is a momentum that has been started around the grand bargain and other initiatives like Charter for Change that will be very hard to stop even if there are people who want to squash it. And as a result, actually, um, traditionally direct implementers, you know, big international NGOs that have traditionally worked directly rather than through local partners are starting to think about how they listen to local organizations more how they start to think about how they will work in partnership with local organizations changes in funding to support organizational development and changes in partnership arrangements which rachel and liz talk about demand a change in the organizations themselves how will that come about um, effective partnerships with local actors in particular require a different approach um, so an overhaul of our policies process and tools, as well as of our staffing and management structures, um, because this work requires different skill sets to direct delivery. So recognising the change in skill sets that's required um, in our recruitment, in our support to staff, and in our performance uh, management, um, our leadership tends to be incentivised more by um, portfolio size than by impact I think that needs to switch. I think we need to be defining success in very different terms. Um, success in terms of the way in which we engage with local government and civil society actors. Shane, working at a large INGO, IRC, recognises the need for wholesale change in their organisation. What I found particularly interesting was what he said about incentives and about the fact that it's portfolio size that tends to drive the organisation. This strikes deep to the relationship between core values and actions. As organisations, we need to go back to our core values. I think that if we start by installing our core values on a day-to-day basis in terms of how we speak, how we relate to others, how we're living these code of conducts, which again, the code of conduct has become something which is like a checkbox. It's like we have it in place, but we don't really know what's in there. What is it that we are aspiring to do? Core values, like even things like solidarity with our team members, you know, these are things that we need to go back to living. And I think that it's not that we've forgotten our core values. It's just that we are so wrapped up in getting the results and getting the work done that we just forget some of the things that are more important. I think we need to broaden our conception of conceptualization of capacities out to consider the full range of capacities that are required for an effective response to properly value things like contextual experience and understanding local networks, um, 
the um, an understanding of the um, pathways into government, for example. Um, so that, and I think that's really critical. I think it's really striking that uh, Shane and Rossio, as well as others working in INGO contexts, recognise the need to return to core values of partnership and collaboration and to build those into their practice. To do all of this, I guess the underpinning thing which becomes even more complex is that to be able to do all of this, you need to establish a trusting relationship with whoever you're going to start working with on the ground. And that also takes quite a significant amount of time and in different approximations and, you know, different ways of engagement. And again, that just requires flexibility. And that's something that we still haven't managed to fully achieve on both ends. Try and evaluate and evaluate the contribution that the communities will put <coughs> in the end of the projects. You'll find that probably it's 50-50. So then what we are saying now is we want the donors who really sort of like value our systems, value our norms, and they view us as, as equal partners. For Moyo, working in rural Zimbabwe, 50-50 equal partnerships is the goal. That's the way that things should work. And that's a similar message to that we've heard from the other contributors to this episode. The real challenge is how to achieve this shift in power and understanding. What I think we've seen in this episode is that mechanisms of funding need to change. The understanding that funders have of local contexts needs to change. The organisation of INGOs and their ability to form partnerships needs to change. And ultimately there needs to be a much greater understanding of the capacity of local communities and local organisations. You'll find the other episodes and much more information, including details on all the contributors, by googling Global Fund for Community Foundations Pathways to Power, where you're also very welcome to contribute your own comments and join in the conversations. And finally, my thanks to the contributors to this episode, Sumira, Melvin, Sam, Hibak, Liz, Rachel, Shane, Rossio and Moyo.